Reading this evening is taken from 1 Samuel, chapter 20, starting at verse 1, going through to verse 9. If you have uh, one of the church Bibles, it's page 292. Then David fled from Naoth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to kill me? Never, Jonathan replied. You are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. But David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I have found favour in your eyes, and he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this, or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it for you. So David said, look, tomorrow is the new moon feast and I am supposed to dine with the king, but let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him, David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. If he says, very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I am guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Never, Jonathan said. If I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Good evening. Nice to see you. The congregation has multiplied since the beginning of the service. Marvellous. Very happy that it has. Uh, let's, let's pray that God will speak to us from his word. Father God, thank you for your presence with us tonight. Thank you for the scriptures. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak into our lives tonight. I pray you take the thoughts that I've prepared, make them useful for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Our evening series is about what it takes, really, to get through life well, what we need to flourishing our lives. And last week, we were looking at the topic of security. And tonight, I'm not sure that it's an obvious thing that I'm talking about, but I think it's an important one. And it's the whole topic of friendship, or actually more than that, Fellowship. Taken as a whole, a broad sweep of scripture makes it really clear that we're not designed to do life alone. And I think that's true for absolutely everyone. We need one another. Connectedness, if you like, is part of the package. Isolation 
loneliness is a scourge. And as long ago as 1940, over 80 years ago, C.S. Lewis of Narnia fame, he penned these words about the importance of friendship. Nowadays, he said, and remember this is, this is over 80 years ago, nowadays it's something quite marginal, not a main course in life's banquet, a diversion, something that fills the chinks of one's time. And if it was true when he wrote that so long ago, it's even more true, I think, today. And um, I read recently, and I think it's a pretty obvious observation, gone are the days when your GP would come to your house and have time to talk and know the family, or your bank manager would know your financial situation and its implications. We cry out for community, but generally we're too busy to create it or contribute to it. Well, everything I've said so far is just true for everyone. And I don't think there's anything very surprising in it. Friendship is important to everyone. But the point I want to emphasize and major on tonight is, yes, friendship's important for everyone. But fellowship is essential to God's people. Why? Because the moment we decide to follow Christ, and that's what a Christian is, the moment we make it our lifetime's task to be obedient to Christ, then we are setting out on a lonely road, by definition. And, and Jesus doesn't finesse that point. He doesn't hide it and tell us, you know, five years after you decided to sign up as a Christian. He tells you right from the start. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, Broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. Small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few people find it. And what that says to me is if you and I are going to prevail in our walk with Christ, as we should, we're not going to be able to do it alone. We will need the company of other people and the assistance of other people. And that's true in following Christ for everyone. And I think it's especially true if you're in leadership in some sort of way, because leadership is lonely. Even self-leadership, which is probably the hardest person to lead, is yourself. Leaders are not human beings in disguise. They're just human beings on display. There are a couple of other reasons why I, I just want to emphasize why this fellowship idea and this friendship idea is, is absolutely important. One is the question of survival and the other is the question of influence. The day is going to come, and it's not because I'm a doom monger here, it's just realism. The day will come when something will happen in your life and you simply will not be able to hack it alone. You will need the encouragement, the support, the kindness of other people. And it's a mistake to think that, well, this will only happen in old age, <laughs> because it's unpredictable when that time will come. But it, it could be tonight. It could be tomorrow. It could be, I don't know when, but it will come. And being in fellowship with others will make all the difference in the world. But it's not just a survival strategy to, uh, for me to up the focus on fellowship. It's also because friends influence us. 
the company we keep has an enormous bearing on the way we do life. And Jesus intends that we should share the company of fellow believers for good, to help us along. And the moment I sort of put the toe in the water of this whole idea of friendship, there is the, sort of one thing I want to avoid big time. So I'm going to say that up front. Do not listen to this talk through the lens of help. I don't have any friends. That would be catastrophic. And you wouldn't be human if occasionally from time to time you think to yourself, why is it that it's always me that does the inviting? Why doesn't someone invite me out for a change? You know, why is it always me that makes the effort? That's such a common thought. Nearly all of us have had that. Rest that to one side. Try and hear this talk from this point of view. This talk will provide me with all that I need to be a good friend. Well, actually, it won't. Some of what I need to be a good friend. Try and hear it that way. The idea of friendship and fellowship is really pretty alien to lots of people today. What Facebook calls friends, which are made with a click and unmade similarly with a click, has nothing to do with what I'm talking about tonight. So I'm not talking about Facebook friends. I, I am talking, though, about the key role that we could have in each other's lives. And I, we're going to look now at one particular friendship in scriptures. When I first wrote this talk, it actually looked at um, two, but then I had compassion on you and thought, there has to be limits to how long a talk can be. But I'm going to talk about King David and his friendship with Jonathan. I could equally easily give, give a similar talk, and if by request, I will do it at a later date, on how it applies to the Apostle Saul or even to Jesus himself, because none of them lived solitary lives. As I say, we all need friends and fellowship, and God provides it. There's no question, really, in David's Life without Jonathan's friendship in his youth, there would never have been old age. So what can I tell you about their friendship? Well, I think the most standout feature of this friendship is how unlikely it was. They have more indifference than they do in common. I was trying to find the right way of saying it. It doesn't sound quite right to say they have more indifference, but we talk about friends having things in common, don't we? Well, they had nothing in common, uh, pretty much, apart from, apart from, as we shall see, their love of the Lord and the Lord's love for them. Let me unpack what I mean by that. Well, think about their upbringing. Jonathan was brought up in the king's palace. He enjoyed a life of privilege. He lived in the royal court. His father was King Saul. He was terribly ambitious for Jonathan, who he believed in time should become king. What about David? Well, he grows up in obscurity in the country. He's insignificant even within his own family. He's treated with contempt even by his brothers. Do you remember what the brothers say to him when he goes off to see the brothers? 
and he's carrying some cheese with him. I was thinking it makes him sound a bit like a Frenchman, but anyway, he was going off with, with the provisions of cheeses. And, he, and the brothers say, with whom did you leave those few sheep of yours in the desert? He, he was an insignificant shepherd, a messenger boy. Not just in terms of their background or their privilege, are they different, but in terms of power. As I've just said, David was in charge of provisions, the provender that day. Saul and Jonathan were in charge of the whole weaponry of Israel. We read quite an interesting little snippet in 1 Samuel 13, verse 19. Not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel went down to the Philistines to have their plowshares, mattocks, axes and sickles sharpened. So on the day of battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. Which I think is the equivalent of us saying, Jonathan carries the nuclear codes and David carries the camembert. They, they, they were just so different in terms of their power and their prospects too. At the beginning of a story, Jonathan has the assured future of being heir apparent, and David has a future as a shepherd. And yet, Jonathan and David build each other up in the Lord. And I would encourage us by saying, God provides everything that is necessary for us to prevail, and he knows what our needs are in advance. And we need companionship, and we need encouragement, and we need soul champions. Now, in very recent years, some have tried to overwrite a homosexual relationship between Jonathan and David, but such a thought is nowhere to be found in the writer's mind. This is the fellowship that comes from serving, worshipping, and living for the same God. It's what you could call the communion of saints. And what Jonathan and David have in common is God's hand upon them. And they both realise that. And in fact, I, I would say with a great deal of confidence, the only reason that I'm up here standing before you talking as a follower of Christ is because of the encouragement and the time and the energy others have poured into my life. And I can't explain it apart from God's kindness. And if you could see the people who have most influenced me and still do, you might well be saying the same thing about them as I just said about David and Jonathan. Outwardly, they appear to have very little in common with me at all. And yet, because we're following Christ, uh, we have everything in common. Anyone, it seems to me, who loves the Lord with all their heart all their mind and all their soul and all their strength. They're standout people. And God willing, you're one of them. And there's fellowship between such people, which is far stronger than any outward superficiality of difference that you might spot from afar. Frankly, if David didn't realize that God's hand was upon him, after the Goliath incident, then he needs his sling examined. Victory went wherever he went. 
That's what we're told in scripture. Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it successfully, 1 Samuel 18.5. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him, 1 Samuel 18.14 and 15. And it became the campaign slogan, didn't it? Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Well, I don't think that that probably surprises you. You know that. You know about David's heroics. You can't miss them. But do you know about Jonathan's heroics, I wonder? Because a remarkable story is told in 1 Samuel chapter 14. And I won't particularly particularly draw out the details, but to tell you in summary, Jonathan and his armor bearer conquer a whole Philistine outpost. They kill 20 men in an area about the size of half an acre. And in what we're told, it's very, very clear that Jonathan has an enormous amount of faith, trust in the Lord. In 1 Samuel 14, 6, Jonathan says to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. I love that verse, 1 Samuel 14, 6. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. And he has, Jonathan, that is, real leadership charisma. In the following verse, the armor bearer says, do all that you have in mind. Go ahead. I'm with you, heart and soul. And other people recognized in Jonathan the Lord's hand of blessing. And we know that because there comes a a, a really strange part in the story where Saul determines that Jonathan should die for a rather extraordinary reason of eating honey when it was prohibited. All Jonathan's uh, friends and supporters gather round and they say, absolutely not. As surely as the Lord lives, not a hair of of his head shall fall to the ground. For he did this today with God's help. And we read, so the men rescued Jonathan and he wasn't put to death. God's anointing binds people together, regardless of rank, race, or riches. And people who long for God's will more than anything else recognize each other. And I'm sure you've experienced that. I'm sure you've spotted that, not just in this country, but when you travel abroad. People who love the Lord Jesus and are serving him, they just stand out, whatever their background and culture. David and Jonathan saw God's hand in each other's lives and they could see the anointing. I hope you can see that in some of the people you meet. So how do we encourage each other? Well, here are some other keys. Develop a generous heart. You want to see the other person or people prosper even more than you yourself prosper. I see that in both David and Jonathan. They were generous. And Jonathan even articulates it. And this is what really annoyed King Saul, isn't it? Jonathan goes up to David and he helps him find strength in God. We'll come back to that a bit later. Don't be afraid, he said, my father Saul won't lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. Now, it's been my privilege to worship in a number of churches and actually see this 
play out, both in the fellowship and in the leadership. And it is essential if a church is going to thrive that we really wish God's blessing on one another. It's not a worldly way of doing things, but it is a godly way of doing things. And it's very upbuilding and strengthening. When you see, let's say, when you have more than one worship group, as I remember in, in a church many, many, many years ago. And of course, this was pretty much bound to happen, I suppose, when you have different worship groups with different styles. Some in the congregation would try and play one group off against another, say, oh, well, I really like it when, let's say, fictitious name here, Caroline leads the worship, that's great. And another group would say, oh, I really like it when Roger leads the worship. These are all fictitious names, by the way. And, and that could be incredibly unhelpful. Or I really like it when Fred preaches, but I don't like it quite so much when George preaches. Very understandable, but really unhelpful. How much better when there's a generosity in actually one group, one worship group says, oh, I so love it when the other group are in business. That's a pathetic little example, but what it's illustrating is not pathetic. It's the desire to see other people succeed even more than you. And that, and that is upbuilding. That is godly. That is Christ-like. On the other hand, if you want to kill a fellowship or kill a friendship, start envying the other person's success. And that, of course, is what King Saul did. He was very, very angry at the thought of King David, or, well, David as he was, prospering at all. Incidentally, this is one of the differences between real fellowship and real friendship and using people. In real fellowship and real friendship, you want the other person to succeed. When you're using other people, you just want them to help you succeed, and there's a world of difference. Well, it's not just that Christ's followers know God's favour and fellowship. They also share the experience of hostility that comes their way because they are Christ followers. And that happened to both Jonathan and David. And the opposition happened to come from the same place, King Saul. But it's true for us as followers of Christ, because it always has been. That's why Paul in the New Testament would say, we are to God the aroma of Christ amongst those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one with the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life, who's equal to such a task. And it's not a very flattering picture, this, is it? He's saying, really, we get up people's noses. And to some, we're marvellous, and to another group, we're minging. And whichever way it works, we're going to need help, and we're going to need support, because not everyone is going to want to encourage you. Here's another thing I see in their friendship, which has got to be true for us if it's going to be meaningful. Great friendship is steadfast. It has to be because there are bumps in the road. And Jonathan and David commit to supporting each other in the strongest possible terms. They actually covenant that they will never let each other down. And they use the kind of word, which is the same kind of word actually that God speaks of, his commitment to us. You know, or maybe you don't know, that um, if, if you go into a, a shop and you buy a tow rope for a car, 
it will tell you the braking strain of that tow rope. It will tell you the kind of weight that you can pull along and when it will snap. But God's love for us and their commitment to each other would have said on the label, no breaking strain. Nothing is going to break this friendship. Nothing is going to break this commitment. And actually, in a rather touching way, and this is rather an aside, we know that both of them live up to this covenant because we know that long after Jonathan was dead, he asked the question, is there anyone left in the house of Saul that I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And those of you who know your Bible well will know that the king spares a chap called Mephibosheth, very difficult word to get out that one, who was a son of Saul, who was crippled in both feet. And David touchingly gets him moved from where he was living in fear of his life and says, you can eat with me on top table forever because of a love I have for Jonathan. And what I'm saying here is a very, very basic point but it's something to take note of. We need to be committed to fellowship. It won't just happen. Great fellowship and friendship will involve sacrifice, going out of our way to strengthen others. That's precisely actually what Jonathan did for David. He sought him out to bring him encouragement. I can actually remember time when I was doing my training uh, to be a vicar at Wycliffe Hall in Oxford. And um, I think I was rather displaced. Uh, you could almost say a fish out of water. Uh, I'd left my job in the city. Uh, I'd left my friends who were in London. I never thought I'd be a student again. And now here I was back in a rubbish room tucked in an institution, um, studying day and night, not at all my scene. And I think it's not at all surprising with the rhythm of my life completely destroyed, really, that I was going through quite a lot of dips and life was not fun. And, and looking back, I can still remember just one very ordinary afternoon when another student made his way into my room, just said, can I have a cup of coffee with you or something like that? And he sat down and he just said, I'm just here to check out. Is everything all right with you? Anything I can do to encourage you or help you? I just wondered. And you know, everything about his presence with me indicate, indicated to me that it was the only reason I could think of that he was there was to help me, because he cared. And uh, it was touching and moving that he should go to such trouble. He was being a friend, wasn't he? That was fellowship, wasn't it? It was genuine. Today's Remembrance Sunday, and um, a verse that we often use on this day is... Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down their life for a friend. And fellowship will be costly. So I can't hide that from you. It'll be very, very valuable. That's why I spoke at the beginning of it, how essential it is. But it's not going to just happen. It will be costly. And I want, as I draw towards the close, just to say how. Because I bet we all agree with everything I've said so far. But the question is going to be, yeah, but how do we make it happen? Well, I got encouragement, but I got challenged. You can make it happen. As I said right at the beginning, the way to hear this talk is, how can I be a good friend? How can I be the provider of support? And, and we can, but
But part of the challenge is that friendship and fellowship is a bit like planting trees. It takes time to grow. It's very difficult to achieve it overnight. It starts with sowing seeds and it requires patience, doesn't it? Of course, I think we have more than a head start in a community like this, where we have small groups or sometimes called fellowship groups. And if they are called fellowship groups, then the name is on the tin. A large part of what goes on in small groups is this is a place you'll be welcome. This is a place that proves you don't have to do this walk alone. This is a place which is like a a ready-made soil to grow, to flourish. In fact, quite honestly, if you're not in a small group, you're an idiot. (laughs) Because without small groups, if you're cutting yourself off from small groups, you are making fellowship so much more distant than it needs to be, and you will come a cropper, which is not what we exist for. So I, I would say, you know, I'm just challenging us a little bit and saying, I acknowledge friendships, fellowship takes time to grow, so it can't be rushed. It's a pity it can't, but you have to start somewhere. And then I, I would say a little bit more, which I think is pertinent to where we are today, which is fellowship is much more achievable in person than it is on a screen. Zoom is all very fine and well and better than nothing, and I'm grateful it exists for that. But relating in person where possible is much preferable. So if you're watching this online, good for you. It's much better than turning us off. But it'd be even better if you were here. Because then we could relate well. And something I've picked up, I'm sure you have too, is it's extraordinary how much knowledge and information we pick up in communication just by seeing someone for a fraction of a second in real life. And, And somehow it doesn't happen in quite the same way on Zoom, does it? And then I want to acknowledge, because if I don't acknowledge this, um, and you'll think, what land are you living in? I want to acknowledge that there are seasons and reasons why building fellowship into your life is sometimes harder than others. So I do get it, actually, that if you're a young family with children keeping you awake all night and you don't quite know what's going to happen in the next hour, it it is is not the optimum time to say, let's start a new fellowship group in my house. And there are other times in life, life stages, where it is particularly challenging, which is also to say, if you're not in one of those phases, capitalise on the fact you've got the chance now to invest in fellowship. And I would say that intergenerational friendships are particularly valuable. I understand why it can be said, and it probably is true, that it's easier on the surface of things to make friends with people who are at the same age and stage as you are. That probably is true. But I would challenge that by saying we learn a lot more in the company of people who are not in the same age and stage. And I've often said, and no one's challenged me yet, but you might, I've often said that I think an ideal fellowship in the church would be, and this can't happen because it's just impossible, would be that all of us had someone five years older than us and ten years older than us who could mentor us towards what a healthy Christian life looks like in that stage that we're yet to get to. 
But obviously that's not achievable because we don't all live to infinity. But it's a, it's a good aspiration. When I'm talking about fellowship like this, I know it's challenging. And part of why I'm doing so is because I want to put it on our agenda. I want to bring it back into the mainstream of what we're trying to achieve and do. In fact, I want to remind us, me included, and in speaking it out, I'm sort of committing myself to this, of the importance of keeping the door open to one another. If we're going to grow as a church, and I think God's mandate is to grow because that comes with the kingdom, then we're going to have to think about how we multiply friendships, how we multiply in fellowship. And that means we're going to have to share. We're going to have to share the good things that we enjoy and have discovered. So here are some practical steps for planting fellowship into our lives. The first one's probably the easiest. I want to encourage you to service, if I could put it that way, existing friendships well. Maybe after you've heard this talk and reflected on it, you'll think, you know, there are some people who I connect with in life and they are much more important to me than I've thought about. I would really miss them. I really value the time they've spent alongside me. And I would just say, let them know. Let them know. Um, postcards, text messages, uh, meet up. Because we're often quite shy about talking what's important to us. Sometimes writing is easier than actually sitting face to face and eyeballing someone and saying it. But let's not take the friendships and fellowship we already have for granted. And then I want to encourage you by saying this, which might surprise you. I think friendships are like lighting candles. One candle can light another candle, and that candle doesn't get diminished through the effort that's expended. You can afford to share your friends. You can afford to be a friend to many. And I want to plant the idea in our heads, if it's not there already, you might really seriously be able to be a life-changing blessing to some other people in your walk through life. It's not just for your benefit. In fact, it probably isn't most for your benefit. But just think about who you might be able to bless through your example, through your kindness, through your commitment. And then there are a couple of things which are going to be challenging for all of us. Watch out for people who have just moved into the area or into the church. Because we are, by definition... On, on the lookout for friends. We are, by definition, wanting fellowship. And make room in your diary for new people. This is so challenging. Because it's the most natural thing in the world, but it's not the most supernatural thing in the world. It's the most natural thing in the world to hunker down at some point. And some people even get to the stage where they think, um, I don't need any new people in my life. I, I don't have room. I don't have time. But I want to say, counterintuitively, don't close ranks around the friends you already have. And I was thinking how to make this really practical. And 
I don't know if this is really practical or is actually just an, an idea too far. But how about thinking to yourself, well, once a month, I would like to invite somebody new for coffee or for a meal or out after a service. Or more than one person. And if once a month is too many, uh, too much, what about once a quarter? Just really trying to turn this into something practical so we don't just go out and say, yeah, 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 sure, good idea, and do absolutely nothing about it. A couple of things uh, we can do at the end of a service, any service. Uh, we can ask someone how they are, and then we can listen to the answer. And we can start, I think, with very small acts of kindness. They can and my last tip before we pray is try and find out what interests the other person. Many, many years ago, uh, and I'll end with this little story, many, many years ago, I belonged to this church as a, as a congregational member. I was about 24 years old. And there were very few people my age in the congregation. And um, I think once a month we used to have a church lunch in the side chapel over there. And I, I did it for a few months. And quite honestly, as a 24-year-old, when the next age person was sort of at least twice and a half my age, I found it quite testing. But I was determined not to give up too quickly. And uh, I remember listening to Desert Island Discs when a fellow was being interviewed he was the ambassador from the UK to Washington, D.C. And he said to, um, on this broadcast, said he had to go out on, on official functions, um, certainly over 365 times in a year. So he had lunch and dinner, and he was forever meeting people. And he was asked in the interview, well, how do you cope with that? You know, what do you do? And he said, well, I read somewhere that everyone's got one book in them. Everyone's got one book in them. So the game I play privately myself, he said, is I, I ask some questions. And I tr keep asking questions until I hit the story or the subject, which is the book they've got in them. And the game I'm playing, he said, is to try and get them to talk about their passion in the shortest amount of questions possible. I thought that sounded rather good. So I came to the lunch here at St. Michael's, and it was... In, in, I think it was in June or July. It was quite a hot day. And when we got the kit all out and ready, and we sat at those trestle tables, and this church lunch came out. And I was sort of at the end of the table, I remember. So I had a space on my right. And this character came in late. And um, he looked very down at heel indeed. And um, it was rather strange because it was a hot summer's day. And he was wearing this thick overcoat and he looked rather quiet and um, I thought right well here we go I I'm going to have to try and um, prize out of him what's the book he's got in him and I I'm guessing that he was in his 80s and there I am in my mid-20s and I can't remember the first question I asked him I probably knowing me I asked him um, do you follow cricket at all because there was a test match going on and he said nope and that one sort of hit the dust and then we might have talked, I don't know, about what was going on with some world current, world affairs, and nope, not really interested in that. 
we might have talked about any number of things. And I certainly tried about five or six topics. And then he said to me, I th oh, I think I said to him, well, look, Wimbledon's um, just about to start. Do you follow tennis at all? And I hit the jackpot with that question. He looked at me and he said, young man, would it interest you to know that I was a men's singles finalist twice? I said, yeah, that's absolutely staggering. How did you get on? He said, oh, I lost completely. I said, um, why was that? He said, I, I couldn't see my opponent's serve, which didn't help. And his name was Bunny Austin, for those of you who are tennis aficionados. And then um, before Andy Murray, he was England's best hope way back. But what I discovered that day, what I'm illustrating is if, if you ask enough, you will land somewhere. People have got something they'd love to talk about. Now I've told you that much easier over coffee. You can just cut to the chase. Say, what's the one thing that you most like to talk about? Don't have to play that silly quiz questions. But I hope you're getting what I'm saying. And let me also say, as well as having small groups and fellowship groups, here at St. Michael's now, we've got into the habit just recently of hosting what we're calling Connect Central meetings here in the church. They happen fortnightly on a Wednesday, and there's one of them coming up this particular Wednesday. Isn't that right? What time is it? 7.45. So there we are. If you're watching online, you need to come in for that one because we don't do that online. And if you do come in, you'll be most, most welcome because I want us to prevail as followers of Christ. I want this walk with Christ to be as fruitful as it possibly can. And the only way that's going to happen is if we're there for one another and we let God lead us and encourage one another. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you that your heart is for us. Thank you that you provide everything that we need to follow you faithfully and be fulfilled. Thank you for the people you've already scattered into our lives who are encouragers, who do care, who do walk alongside us. And our prayer tonight is that we might be those people to others. That we'd stop and think and pray and have eyes to see who it is that you're bringing across our landscape that we could make a difference to. And we pray this would be a spirit-led thing, something that you bring about, Lord. And this place would be known increasingly as a place where we build one another up. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.